Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. Welcome back to Talking Tudors, episode 148. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger, and I'm so glad that you could join me. As always, I'd like to begin by acknowledging and thanking the wonderful listeners who continue to support this podcast via Podbean Patron, and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. This really does make a difference. If you love the podcast and tune into every episode, perhaps you'd consider becoming a Talking Tudors patron. Just click on the Be My Patron on Podbean badge on the homepage of my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, or click on the Be a Patron button on the Podbean app. Join the Talking Tudors patron family, and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll be automatically entered into our patron-only monthly giveaways. February's prize is a copy of the Palgrave Handbook of Shakespeare's Queens, edited by Dr. Valerie Schutte and Kavita Mooden Finn. A huge thank you to Dr. Shooty for sponsoring this wonderful prize. All patrons are also eligible to attend monthly Talking Tudors live talks, which take place on Zoom. These events are exclusive to patrons. Next month, I'll be chatting to Dr. Owen Emerson about a new exhibition opening at Hever Castle, entitled Becoming Anne, Connections, Culture and Court. Please get in touch with me if you'd like to register for this event. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, mugs, notebooks and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtudors.threadless.com. I'd love to see pics of you wearing or using your Talking Tudors merch, so please do tag me on social media and use the hashtag ILoveTalkingTudors. Now, on to today's episode. I'm excited that joining me on the show to talk about Jaquetta of Luxembourg is Becky Stockton. Becky has been a passionate, independent scholar of British history for nearly two decades. After an undergraduate degree in history and social studies, she went on to earn her Juris Doctor degree to hone her research, writing and teaching skills. Last year, she started a website, plantsandplantagenets.com where she writes non-fiction posts about medieval and early modern history and blogs about her lessons learned from her other historical interest, growing and using medieval medicinal herbs. Our conversation's coming up straight after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sales.
Welcome to Talking Tutors, Becky. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you, Natalie, so much for having me. So let's just start by you just introducing yourself to our listeners and just telling us a little bit about your background. Sure. My name is Becky Stockton, and I live in the U.S., just outside of Minneapolis, Minnesota. And I'm one of those folks who's basically been obsessed with history for as long as they can remember. I grew up in the middle of the country, which meant that my family took lots of long road trips when we went on vacation in the summer, which meant that not only did I have lots of time to read while we were in the car, but just about every rest stop we stopped at had a roadside historical marker that gave some kind of a short description of a past event or point of interest. And I always wanted to read them all, which was was good that my parents were also interested in those. Yeah, and of course, as I got older, I realized that you know the history presented on those markers was often problematic for a number of reasons. But what I remember from when I was younger was that they really drove home the fact that history really is all around. So I knew I wanted to study history. And when I got to university, my undergraduate major was history from day one. And I was primarily interested in Europe and the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, But for the first couple of years, I I was just sort of interested in everything. So I didn't really have a good focus. Well, that changed when the concert band that I was a member of went on a performance tour of the UK and Ireland. And so we spent two weeks and it was just the the most amazing two weeks. Uh, We spent the daytime visiting different historic sites and learning all kinds of new things. And then most evenings we were set up to perform in these amazing venues like medieval churches. And, you know, we'd be set up amongst these just gorgeous centuries-old memorial slabs and effigies, and I was just absolutely blown away. So after that visit, my path of research was pretty much set. I wrote the final paper for my degree on Mary Queen of Scots and John Knox in terms of the Reformation, and from there, my study history kind of just kept growing. Um, You know, it extended to Elizabeth I, and then backed up to Anne Boleyn, who is still my biggest historical crush, and, you know, then went to Henry and the rest of his wives, and then, you know, backed up further to the seventh and Jasper Tudor. And eventually I got to Jaquetta and the War to the Roses. So I seem to just kind of be working my way back through English history. Primarily, I study women's history, particularly women's agency and how it was, excuse me, often exercised in an indirect, but also very effective way. So last year I started realizing that I missed writing about history. So I started my website, Plants and Plantagenets, and I write a little bit of everything from all kinds of time periods there. And it's been such a great opportunity, not only to enjoy writing, but to connect with so many other amazing history lovers. Fantastic. That's a wonderful background. And I totally understand what you're saying. It does seem that one personality leads you to another and that's the never ending digging. I've kind of (laughs) said to myself, I do not want to fall in love with any other periods because I really don't have the time. So we are going to be talking about Jaquetta of Luxembourg today, but this is not an area I, I, I know too much about. So I'd love it if you could maybe just tell us a little bit about who she was. Sure. So Jaquetta of Luxembourg was the oldest daughter of Pierre of Luxembourg and Marguerite of Beau. Her family was, while not very well known to most of us, I would say, especially the the Tudor fans, but her family was very well connected across Europe. So not only was her father influential in his own right as the Count of Brienne, Conversano, and Saint-Paul, but he also had family ties in Italy, the Holy Roman Empire, and in Brittany. Now her mother, Marguerite, was related not only to several noble Italian houses, but she was actually even a descendant of King John of England through his daughter. So she actually had that that royal connection back to England from centuries before. Now, of course, Jaquetta's childhood is something of a mystery. 
As was the case with most girls during the Middle Ages, very little was actually recorded of her earliest years. We know she was born in 1415 or 1416, but we don't know the exact date or the location. However, if we look at the type of childhood that was shared by most noble girls at the time on the continent, as well as what was going on in the political sphere that impacted her family, we can make some educated guesses about her upbringing. So the first thing that would have really impacted her young life was the Hundred Years' War between England and France. Now, that had been going on already, well, on and off anyway, for about 80 years, but Jaquetta was born in the midst of a particularly active period. And as the Royal House of Luxembourg, her family were vassals of the Duke of Burgundy, who was allied with the English. And we'll be coming back to this a bit here, but to just demonstrate exactly how close they were involved, her uncle Louis was not only the Bishop of Terouanne, but he also served as Chancellor to the English Regent of France, who was the Duke of Bedford. So Jacquetta's parents would have spent their time at various castles and estates in the English-held territories of Northern France. And it's possible that Jaquetta may have traveled herself with them, or she may have spent time in the household of a noble relative. And that's what her brother did, for example. And of course, we know that that was common in both the continent and in England at the time. So we don't know exactly where she spent her time, but we do know that she received an impressive education and was really well-connected with many of the key political figures and families of the time. So once Jaquetta reached marriageable age, her circumstances changed drastically for the better, though. Now, her upbringing and her family connections meant that she was always going to have great prospects for marriage, but I doubt that she could have imagined exactly where her path was going to lead her. So I mentioned the Duke of Bedford a minute ago, and he was the uncle of the English King Henry VI. And Henry was a very young boy yet at this time. Henry VI had been king since he was nine months old when his father, Henry V, had died of dysentery on campaign in France. When Henry V died, he put his own two brothers, the Duke of Bedford and the Duke of Gloucester, in charge on, on the young Henry's behalf. Well, Bedford's wife, Anne, passed away in late 1432. Now, despite what seemed to be a happy and very successful marriage, the Duke was apparently eager to remarry quickly for whatever reason. And that might have been because he was already in his mid-40s and didn't have any heirs. The two of them never had any children. But whatever the reason, his chancellor, who if we remember was Jaquetta's uncle, must have had a word with him because in April of 1433, the Duke married Jaquetta and she became the Duchess of Bedford at age 17 or so. So that's a pretty big role to step into. So after the wedding, they spent a few weeks in Paris, which was, again, in English hands at the time. And they stayed at the Duke's home, which was the Hotel de Bourbon, which is near the Louvre. So that would have been the first time that Jaquetta saw Bedford's amazing library. And he had been collecting books and manuscripts for this library for a while. And I can only imagine it would have been astonishing. I, if I ever have a time machine, I would absolutely love to, to go back and be able to see what that was like in situ. But the couple didn't stay in Paris for very long because later that summer they returned to England. Now, the primary purpose of this visit was for Bedford to hopefully persuade Parliament to provide more money for the French wars. Things hadn't been going quite so well for the English ever since Joan of Arc showed up and started giving the French a morale boost. And of course, after decades of fighting, financing the war was getting harder and harder. While they were there, Bedford introduced his new wife to his nephew, the 12-year-old king, Henry VI, and his court. So suddenly, Jaquetta was in a brand new country, and she was all of a sudden the second highest ranked woman at court after only the Dowager Queen, who was 
Catherine of Valois. So she had an official state entry into London, and Jaquetta was immediately immensely popular with the people. Now, while they were there, it wasn't all business, so they did have a chance to spend some time at Bedford's estate in Kent, which is Penshurst Place. And it seemed for a while that the Duke might actually retire from his military duties and remain in England. Now, they had started some building projects and some renovations at Penshurst, so potentially it was an option to be able to just retire and take things easy. However, that changed because by July of 1434, the state of things in Paris had deteriorated so much, the citizens of Paris basically begged Bedford to return and restore order. So he and Jaquetta were back at the Hotel de Bourbon by Christmas of that year. Now, by the following spring, things had gotten so bad in the war that Bedford realized that making a peace agreement was just absolutely becoming a necessity. So he moved his household from Paris to Rouen, which was more secure for the English, and started getting ready for these peace talks. Unfortunately, it wasn't just the war that had been going downhill during this time, though, as Bedford's health had started to fail as well. In fact, he became so ill that he was confined to his bed and unable to attend the peace talks that person in fall, which I have to imagine would have been hard for him. You know, he had been fighting on his brother's behalf and then on his on his nephews for years. So not being able to see things through, I'm sure, was was rather tough. But the Duke did pass away on September 14th, 1434. And if he had known, perhaps it's a good thing, actually, because if he had known the way that treaty was going to turn out, it might not have, have made him very happy. So perhaps it's it's better for him that it went that way. So now Jaquetta was left a widow at 19, but at least she was very well provided for in Bedford's will. She actually turned out to be his sole heir, so she received nearly all of his estates and goods, including that amazing library in Paris. And all that generosity suggests that the Duke had really regarded her very highly as he had trusted her with everything that he'd spent building his, his life. So now not only was Jaquetta a wealthy young widow, but she was also an English dowager duchess, which of course came with responsibilities and limitations. So her teenage nephew, the English king, instructed her to return to England at the end of 1435. And then a few months later, in February of 1436, Jaquetta was granted her dower as Bedford's widow. However, it was given on the condition that she did not remarry without the king's permission. Now, this condition might not surprise us very much, uh, as we know that Henry VIII expected to be consulted or give approval on most noble marriages. And so it's something that, you know, I'm sure a lot of listeners will be familiar with. At the time, though, this was actually a fairly new thing and interestingly for us Tudor lovers, it really came about after Henry VI's widowed mother, Catherine de Valois, had secretly married Owen Tudor, who was, of course, just a member of her household. Now, the reason anyone cared about this was because the king's council worried what might happen politically if the dowager queen had more children with another husband, especially while her son, the king, was still young. You know, would it possibly be you know, a case where we would see a revolt in favor of the queen's other children, depending on you know, who her new husband might be, that kind of thing. So after Catherine and Owen, the council said, that all royal dowagers had to have permission to remarry, and that extended to the dowager duchesses as well. Now, of course, by permission, they really mean that the king and his council would decide if, when, and to whom these dowagers would remarry again. Now, in Jaquetta's case, whatever plans that Henry's council may have had in mind for her next marriage went out the window, because it turned out that despite the king's instructions, Jaquetta had already remarried. So her new husband was Sir Richard Woodville. Now, 
Woodville was a knight who had been a member of the Duke of, of Bedford's household. Now, granted, he was socially more advanced than Owen Tudor had been, but still, this shocked many, many people. Now, I feel like it's important now to also clarify that there was no suggestion of anything inappropriate or untoward going on between Jaquetta and Richard while the Duke was still alive. So it's, it's not a situation like that. So by the time that their marriage had been revealed, it had been nearly a year and a half since the Duke's death. And it's likely that the two got to know each other after he passed away, perhaps on the journey from France back to England. Aside from the difference in their ranks, the two of them falling in love wouldn't really seem strange to us. The two were close in age, and they'd likely gotten to know each other, at least somewhat, during the times that Richard was serving the Duke in person. Also, Jaquetta was now basically alone and facing going back to a new country, but this time she wouldn't have her husband there to guide her. So Richard, as a native Englishman, was likely to also have helped prepare her mentally and emotionally for what her new English her new life in England was going to be like. We don't know when their wedding took place or what it was like, but obviously it caused a big to-do at court, where, of course, their social differences did matter a lot. <laughs> so not only had Jaquetta gone against the instructions of the king and destroyed any chance that they could use her marriage to create an alliance that would be beneficial for England, but most nobles really just couldn't fathom the idea that a wealthy and powerful duchess would choose to marry for love. And it, it just wasn't done. Wealthy women married who their families told them to, and that was it. In the end, Jaquetta ended up being fined a thousand pounds which, according to the National Archives currency converter, is close to 625,000 pounds in modern money. So they did not get let off lightly, at least in, in financial terms. Uh, and one thing I would add just as a, a bit of a side note here, if anybody wants a fun exercise, go check out that currency converter online, pick a year and an amount, and you can see not only how much purchasing power it would be equivalent to in, in money, but also you can see the equivalent in terms of the kind of goods that you might have tried to buy. So for example, you know, how many horses or cows you might have bought or how much wool or, you know, the daily wages for a, a craftsman for a number of days. So that was something that was really cool to play around with. So if folks haven't given that a, a shot, that would, that's, that was fun for me anyway. Well, fortunately for the newly married Woodvilles, Henry VI's nature was fairly forgiving. And plus, he clearly had a soft spot for his aunt by marriage. And so he forgave them. And in fact, about a year and a half later, both Jaquetta and Richard were officially pardoned. So now they were able to set up their country estate at Grafton Regis, which is near Richard's family lands. Their family also started to grow. Jaquetta gave birth to 14 children over the next 20 years, and 12 of them actually reached adulthood, which of course was rare for the time, so they were very fortunate. Jaquetta and Richard divided their time between Grafton and the court, where they both had duties for the king. Of course, she was the Dowager Duchess of Bedford, and he was a key military commander. After the king married Margaret of Anjou in 1445, Jaquetta joined the new queen's household as a lady-in-waiting and quickly became one of Margaret's most relied-upon companions. Richard became Baron Rivers in 1448, and then in 1450, he was made a Knight of the Garter and named Seneschal of Gascony. In 1453, terrible news from France from the war sent the king into a prolonged catatonic state that lasted for a year and a half. In that time, the Duke of York was named as protector and he was appointed to rule in the king's name in early 1454. At that time, he sent Queen Margaret and her infant son to join Henry at Windsor Castle and Jaquetta accompanied them when they went. Just a couple of years later, in 1455, 
1865, the Civil War that we now call the War of the Roses broke out between the houses of York and Lancaster. That's a whole different podcast on its own. I won't <laughs> touch those details for now, other than to say that the Woodvilles remained loyal to the king and to the House of Lancaster all the way up until the Battle of Towton in 1461. And that was when the queen's forces were utterly destroyed and the surviving Lancastrian lords realized that the writing was on the wall. There was just really no way Henry and Margaret were going to be able to come back from this. So after that battle, Jaquetta's husband and oldest son, Anthony, were among those who surrendered their swords and pledged loyalty to the New Yorkist king, Edward IV. Now, I'm sure the idea of a new house on the throne took some getting used to for them. Um, but despite the defeat of the House of Lancaster, which both Jaquetta's and Richard's families had served for generations, I have to imagine the Woodvilles were grateful that the war seemed to be coming to a close, and they seemed content to continue serving England in the new reign. And they had the opportunity to do so because the new king, Edward, was making it a point to avoid the mistakes that Henry VI had made, actively reached out to both his Yorkist friends and his former Lancastrian enemies, and invited them to be his advisors and help patch the country back up after the Civil War. He knew that if he didn't help to mend those rifts, you know, he could end up just as vulnerable as Henry had been. So Richard and Anthony were both officially pardoned and asked to join the new king's council. Now, Jaquetta's role at Edward IV's court was minimal at best during the years that Edward remained unmarried. Of course, that changed significantly in 1464 when Edward met her daughter Elizabeth, who was already a widow with two children at that point, fell in love and secret secretly married Elizabeth. So Jaquetta is now the mother of the queen. Richard is the king's advisor, and after nearly 30 years of marriage, you might think that maybe they could finally sit back and relax a little bit. Their work wasn't done yet, though, and both of them would spend the rest of their lives still working to protect and strengthen the English monarchy, which of course now is all that much more of a personal mission since their daughter and son-in-law wore the crowns. Wow, that was amazing. I feel like I've learned a lot just in that short period of time. It's, you know, the background information that I, I haven't looked into before, so that was really awesome. Now, I, you've obviously mentioned lots of events that that Jaquetta was, was witness to, um, considering she was born so circa 1415. And she lived until about 14, was it 1472? Correct. Yeah. So she obviously saw a lot. That's a really tumultuous period. Um, apart from the, the, the events that you've mentioned, did you want to tell us about any other events that she bore witness to? Sure. Yeah. I think Jaquetta's lifespan was just so fascinating because as you mentioned, you know, it's it spanned a period of time when you know, the world and England itself were just so different at the end than they were at the beginning. The way I think of it is, you know, so often we use the Battle of Bosworth and the ascendancy of the Tudors as sort of the symbolic end of the Middle Ages period and the beginning of the early modern period. But if we think back on it and look at it, really, that came only 65 years after the Battle of Agincourt give or take, which to me, at least, you know, Agincourt feels very medieval and so different to the world that that saw the end of the Plantagenets and the rise of the Tudors. So to me, that seems like such a drastic change in culture and just everything at that point. And Jaquetta witnessed nearly all of that in between. So I think she really had some interesting things that she saw. So I mentioned already that her childhood and her young adult life were so heavily influenced by what we now call the Hundred Years War. Um, you know, again, and, and to put that in perspective there, she was born in 1415 or 16, and 1415 was the year that we had that famous English victory at Agincourt, which turned the tide, at least for the time, for the English. And then she was just five or six in 1420 when the Treaty of Troy was signed. And in that case, that was when the French King Charles VI handed control of France to England's Henry V and named Henry's heirs as the next in line to the French throne. Things then changed drastically again just two years later when Henry V died. And I mentioned this already, but you know, leaving his brothers in charge and 
just a nine-month-old baby as King of England. In the years that followed, Jaquetta's family was directly involved in the capture of Joan of Arc in 1430. In fact, it was her uncle, Jean, whose forces captured Joan, and they kept her at his castle until she was handed over to the church for trial eventually. Later, Jaquetta witnessed the breakdown of the English-Burgundian alliance against France firsthand, and that was spurred on in part by her own first marriage to a fallout there between the Duke of Bedford and his former former brother-in-law, the Duke of Burgundy. Then we think about Jaquetta a little bit later, and she was serving Henry VI and Margaret of Anjou when the last of the English-held lands in France were lost, except for just Calais. And while that essentially ended the Hundred Years' War, it also led to Henry's resulting illness that essentially immobilized his rule for long periods of time and allowed the tensions at court to really escalate to the point of warfare. So that brings us to another major world event. So Jaquetta ended up having a front row seat for nearly the entire Wars of the Roses as well. She and Richard both supported the Lancastrian cause through the major battles of the Civil War. So they were right there experiencing both the defeats and the victories right up front. Now, Jaquetta also saw Henry VI go from a young man when she first met him, who was you know, perhaps just not well suited by nature to the high position that he had inherited, to a man who was continually plagued by recurring illnesses that robbed him of nearly all ability to rule his country. And so as a result, she saw that devastation forced on the country by those years of civil war. Once the Lancastrian cause was finally lost, she saw Edward then try to learn from those mistakes and attempt to rebuild the country with peace and greater collaboration. So by the end of her life, Jaquetta was witness to the first decade of Yorkist rule, which without the benefit of hindsight, probably seemed like a fairly final transition from the Lancastrians to the Yorks, Yet, which we now know, would result in the end of the Plantagenet dynasty even less than 20 years later. Those were some of the really key moments that she lived through, especially with the benefit of 500 years of hindsight. To me, she always comes across as a very, obviously, intelligent pragmatic woman. How did her contemporaries view her? Well, Jaquetta's contemporaries tended to fall into one of two camps in terms of their regard for her. Uh, one group held her in very high esteem. I'll get to the specifics in a minute. Uh, but the other group was really quite resentful of the success that the Woodville family overall had found. And so they took advantage of you know, any opportunity to vilify and slander them. Of course, sadly, as happens so often, especially with women's reputations, it's that negative perspective that is sort of stuck throughout history. And that's the one we often hear of her first, which is unfortunate, but in many ways, I don't think it's terribly surprising to us as a modern audience. I mean, ask any high schooler, it's, it's human nature that rumors are always going to spread fast. And even today, anything that's said about a person that's even remotely scandalous or juicy gets remembered, even if it's never proven to be true, or if it is proven to be false for that matter. And I think that was as true in the late Middle Ages as it is today. And in this particular case, and I'll get to this in just a second, but it was very much in the interests of those who had an agenda against the Woodvilles to essentially scream it from the mountaintops. You know, they wanted to get it out to the widest possible audience because it was for their own benefit. So let's talk a little bit first about that anti-Woodville camp. So this is the story that we often hear, you know, that they were this greedy, grasping family of nobodies. You know, they schemed to get their girl married to the king or maybe even use some supernatural help, you know. 
Uh, and then they clawed their way into all the positions of power and displacing essentially all those other poor nobles who should have been there by right of birth, right? So some of this impression we get from the things that Richard III said and did during his brief regency and then his kingship. And there certainly were others who disliked the Woodbills for one reason or another and jumped on this bandwagon as well. But there was one man in particular who was not a fan of the Woodbills and he was not shy about sharing his opinion. And I think that this is really the source of almost everything that you came later, including the things that Richard said during his reign. So I think it's worth taking a little bit of time just to kind of see how this enmity got started and to see how the years of opposing fortune made it almost unavoidable that the sides would clash. So I'm sure many listeners are familiar with Richard Neville, who was the Earl of Warwick during this time. For those who may not know him, Warwick was the closest ally and supporter of Richard, Duke of York, and York's wife, Cecily, was Warwick's sister. So naturally, throughout the Wars of the Roses, Warwick was York's right-hand man. And in fact, even after York himself died, Warwick continued to guide York's son, Edward. And it was that combination of Warwick's political scheming and Edward's military abilities that really led to Edward being recognized as king and then crowned as Edward IV. So that's where Warwick got his nickname, which was the Kingmaker. So understandably, after all his years of hard work to put his cousins, the Yorks, on the throne, the Kingmaker understandably expected to kind of reap the, you know, the rewards of his efforts. Well, he became very jealous and protective of his influence over the new King Edward. He wanted to be the power behind the throne, not just one of many. And it seemed that Warwick had already forgotten the lesson learned the hard way during Henry VI reign, which is that a king has to draw on counsel from more than just his own faction in order to maintain balance among the nobles at court. Well, anyway, when Edward met and married Elizabeth Woodville entirely of his own volition, rather than the French princess that Warwick was negotiating for, Warwick did not take it very well. And again, I, you know, I think it's important to recognize that his disappointment and to an extent his anger is understandable. You know, Warwick had been doing all this diplomatic work on Edward's behalf and and thought the king was backing him on all of it. And then Edward just pulls the rug out from under his whole court and says, just kidding, I've already been married for four months. You know, I mean, that would be unsettling for any advisor to hear. Well, for Warwick, though, things start to get even tougher to swallow because not only has Edward married Elizabeth, but now he has, horror of horrors, started to actually listen to Elizabeth's father and brother as part of his council. Again, that wasn't even really news at this point. You know, Richard and Anthony had both been invited to join the council the year before, and Edward had, as I mentioned, you know, had been actively inviting Lancastrian lords to help him build a collaborative government. But still, I'm, I'm sure for Warwick, it had to feel like adding insult to injury. Now, it also doesn't help that there had been bad blood between the Earl of Warwick and Richard Woodville, again, Baron Rivers, that'll come up as important here in a minute, but there'd been bad blood between the two of them for years. And if we look at even the first incident, we have to go back to 1455. Richard had been captain of Calais since 1452, but during that time, there were repeated incidents of money not being sent from England that was needed to pay the soldiers' wages. And so Richard was left in that situation, of course, trying to calm down the soldiers and and maintain their trust in the king and making sure that that nothing gets out of hand while they wait for the money to arrive. In 1455, King Henry appointed Warwick to the captaincy of Calais, which meant Richard could go home to his family. But Richard refused to leave his post until Parliament agreed to send all of those back payments owed to the soldiers so that all of his accounts could be settled, which, you know, I think from our perspective today, again, it's 
it's a pretty, it seems like a pretty decent thing to do. You know, a lot of captains might've just sort of washed their hands of it and said it was the next guy's problem to deal with. Unfortunately, Warwick, of course, was not amused because not only did it delay his ability to take on his new post, he was supposed to take over in August and he didn't actually you know, become captain until late April. But it also meant that after this, the soldiers at Calais loved Richard, but they weren't really fans of Warwick and the Yorks. So, of course, this gave Warwick something else to dislike Richard for, besides just the Lancaster and York thing, which was significant anyway. So the second incident happened in 1458 and also had to do with Warwick being captain of Calais. Since taking on the post, Warwick had also been engaging in a little piracy on the side. And of course, that loot went into his own personal coffers. Well, that really came back to bite him when one of his excursions ended up attacking a fleet that was headed for Lübeck, modern-day Germany. Problem was that this attack violated a treaty, and King Henry was not happy when he heard about it. So the king appointed Richard Woodville, again, Baron Rivers, to lead an investigation into Warwick's conduct. So I think we can imagine how Warwick, who was an earl, felt about having to answer to a hearing called by a mere baron. After those two events together, Warwick certainly didn't think of, of Richard in very friendly terms. So if we jump back ahead to the mid-1460s, Warwick was watching as the king continued to take the Woodville's advice and to favor the queen's family for several years. If we recall that Jaquetta and Richard had 12 children who survived to adulthood uh, and that Elizabeth was the oldest surviving child, that meant that there were quite a few others who were also starting to reach marriageable age around this time. Of course, as siblings of the queen, they couldn't just marry anyone. So Edward arranged or approved advantageous marriages for several of Elizabeth's younger brothers and sisters within the other noble and wealthy families. This also did not sit well with Warwick. Now, his opinion was that these alliances were proof that the Woodvilles were greedy and were out to you know, take as much control of the country's land and wealth as they could get their hands on. And again, I understand how all of this could have been really hard for work to accept, especially given his personal past and the disappointments that he'd experienced more recently. So again, from that perspective, I can see how it would appear to him that these lowborn nobodies, as he viewed them, were being raised above what they deserve. The thing is, though, I truly think that if it had been any other family that had set up marriages like these, or any other king in the past or in the since then even, who had chosen to make strategic matches between his own family, of course, including his wife's, and others around the country to strengthen his position, I think they would have been looked at as smart strategic moves, to be honest. Yes, marrying the queen's siblings into the other noble families did certainly bring wealth and prestige that potentially would not have been available to those siblings if their sister hadn't married the king. Edward really took advantage of his new extended family to further bind both Lancastrian and Yorkist families to the royal family through marriages, which as a king who was new to his throne and was still trying to heal the rifts of a decade of civil war, it's a really vital thing for him to be able to do. So of course it's impossible and unwise for us to try to psychoanalyze someone who lived five centuries ago, but I personally really wonder if perhaps Warwick's overall perspective on Edward and the Woodvilles wasn't a little skewed if understandably so, by a little bit of personal begrudgment more than history is really acknowledged. At any rate, by 1469, Warwick had had enough and he took action against the king he'd helped to place on the throne. He married his daughter Isabel, without permission, of course, to Edward's younger brother, George, the Duke of Clarence. And then he and George made a public declaration from Calais where they had held the wedding. And this declaration said that Edward was falling prey to bad advice from greedy and self-serving advisors. Now, Jaquetta and Richard were both amongst the advisors they names, though, again, there weren't 
any specific wrongdoings mentioned, just that yeah. they maybe shouldn't be the people who were advising the king. So regardless, Clarence and Warwick used these accusations as justification for an invasion of England, which was aimed at deposing Edward and putting Clarence on the throne in his place. And of course, those claims against the Woodbills kept circulating. On the other hand, though, except for the small but very loud minority that was driven by pride and ambition, people generally thought very highly of Jaquetta. Mentioned earlier that she was really beloved by the people of London first when she came there as the Duchess of Bedford and later again as Countess Rivers. So she was welcomed very enthusiastically during her official entry into London after she married Bedford. And in fact, she was so well regarded by London's mayor and aldermen that in 1461, Margaret of Anjou's powerful army was camped outside the town. And of course, the leaders were very concerned about what would happen to their citizens and their property. So the mayor asked Jaquetta, along with two other noble women, to basically parlay with Margaret on London's behalf and try to reach a peaceable conclusion so that the city wouldn't be taken over by her army. So unfortunately, there are few documented sources that describe in any detail the positive perception of Jaquetta and Richard. But again, it's not really all that surprising. Even today, people tend to record their negative experiences and observations at a much higher rate than those of positive ones. And as we've seen, most of the negative press, if you will, comes from a small number of disaffected rivals who understandably begrudge the family's success. So it's rather a, a biased and skewed view, in my opinion, but I think it helps to look a little bit into why certain people thought the way they did about the family. Yeah, no, that's so interesting. And I think that's why the context is always so important, because I find a lot of the times things are just plucked kind of, you know, midair as though they they happened in a vacuum. And it's so important to find out what's going on. Often in, in popular depictions, though, Jaquetta is depicted quite well, I think, quite kind of like an intelligent woman. And she's always shown having quite a good relationship with her daughter. Do we know anything about their actual relationship? Uh, I, I wish. I mean, the evidence that we do have, it, it does point to it being a happy and close one, particularly once Elizabeth reached adulthood. But of course, a lot of that is subjective too. So, you know, again, I'm, I'm going to sound like a broken record here, but again, we don't know a lot about Elizabeth's early childhood. Now, even her birth date, it's usually given as 1437, but that's not entirely certain. But, you know, if we look at her childhood the same way we did with Jaquetta's, you know, again, we can assume assume that her experience was very much at least like those of most daughters of the English nobility. So we know that Elizabeth's parents were often away either at court or on one of Richard's military assignments. So it's likely that she would have been raised by servants at Grafton with her siblings. And she must have attended lessons with tutors because she was literate and could write. And we know that this was something that, that she passed on to her children as well. So again, just like her mother, she might have spent some time in the homes of, of relatives or neighbors to learn the skills that she would need to run an estate, um, you the appropriate manners, the hosting duties that a woman of her social status would be expected to take on. But at the same time, we know that Jaquetta did visit home in between times at court. Um, so I'm sure she must have enjoyed visiting her children, especially her oldest daughter, either when she was home to just to visit or maybe during one of her many confinements with all of those children. And it must have been nice for her to get away from the court for a little bit. Well, the next thing we know about Elizabeth's life is that she married Sir John Gray in or around 1452. And interestingly, both Elizabeth and Jaquetta gave birth to children over the next several years. So it's likely then that Elizabeth would have sought guidance and advice from her mother, who was literally going through the same thing during those years. 
After Elizabeth's husband was killed in 1461 at the Second Battle of St. Albans, she returned to Grafton with her two sons. And so the fact that she was willing and able to return home gives us some further evidence that Elizabeth had a good relationship with both of her parents. After Elizabeth married Edward, Jaquetta stayed at court with her daughter and her grandchildren periodically, which again suggests that there must have been a strong relationship between the two women. It's hard to think that if Elizabeth didn't want her mother there, she wouldn't have just simply sent her home. <laughs> Jaquetta had plenty of other children that she could spend time with after all. So they must have had a good relationship to spend that much time together. Again, unfortunately, we don't have journals or writings from either woman describing those years, but with so many challenges facing Elizabeth and her family after she became queen, it would make sense that Elizabeth would have relied on Jaquetta's experience. You know, her mother had so much experience in the courts of both England and Europe that you would think that her advice on how to navigate her way through that court would have been just invaluable to Elizabeth as she was kind of taking this on for the first time. Yeah. And if we go back to thinking about Jaquetta, I'm just, I'm still thinking about her life and everything that she witnessed. I imagine mm -hmm. that she faced a lot of challenges as well and that there were quite a lot of struggles even just the thought of 14 children it's um, wow that's right. a lot of work obviously and, and amazing really that 12 of them survived into adulthood I found that quite amazing but obviously they lost two children that we know of possibly more so there's you know there are challenges and there are struggles do you want to tell us a little bit about those well, despite obviously being a high-born and privileged woman, Jaquetta, as you mentioned, really did overcome some significant hardships that she faced throughout her life. Um, and to begin with, you know, one thing I, I mentioned very briefly earlier is that there was opposition to both of her marriages, whether she married by her own choice or at her family's direction. Again, I referenced it briefly. When Jaquetta married the Duke of Bedford, even though it wasn't her choice, there were lots of questions. Why was Jaquetta the choice? Why did the Duke remarry so quickly. And we know that even though none of that was her doing or her choice, we know that that did lead to long-term and far-reaching effects on the world stage. We know that the Duke of Burgundy, who felt that you know, his former brother-in-law brother remarrying after just six months was sort of an insult to his sister, you know, really started to change his opinion towards being allies with England at all. So we know that by the end of, actually right after the end of, of Bedford's life, Burgundy allied again with France. And that, of course, made significant hardships for the rest of the English forces as well. So in her second marriage, Jaquetta married Richard Woodville for love, which of course sounds nice and romantic to us, but at the time caused much more serious trouble than just a few rumors going around. Now, even after Jaquetta was settled in her personal life and she and Richard were settled at Grafton, events continued to challenge her loyalty to the House of Lancaster, both as the house overall and to Henry VI and Margaret of Anjou personally. Now, Jaquetta was clearly brought up in what I think of as the traditional sense of loyalty, meaning that one was loyal to the crown and whomever wore it, regardless of whether that individual person was a good or effective monarch or not. For example, I think that the fact that she was willing to speak to Margaret on London's behalf in 1461 indicates that she was aware of the flaws in Henry's rule and in the Lancastrian campaigns, and yet she and Richard both stayed loyal to the king and the queen that they had served until it became obvious that doing so was no longer sustainable either for themselves or for the country. And if we move beyond the political, the course of events during the Cousins' War post 
problems, not only for the king's cause, but it also put Chiquetta's family in very real personal danger. In January 1460, Richard and their son Anthony were posted at Sandwich. Well, one night, the Earl of Warwick sprung a surprise attack on the town in the middle of the night, and both Richard and Anthony were taken captive across the channel back to Calais, which was still Warwick's stronghold. When they got there, the two of them were hauled before a panel of Yorkist lords, including the young Edward Earl of March. Of course, none of them at the time knew that Edward would end up as Richard's son-in-law and brother-in-law to Anthony at the time. <laughs> so I'm sure that had to be either an interesting topic of, of conversation around the family dinner table or ended up with something where we just said, nope, we're never talking about that again. At any rate, the Woodvilles were berated and subjected to a whole tirade about how Richard was lowborn, didn't deserve his titles, all that kind of thing. They were then held at Calais for a period of time, probably about six months, but it could have been longer. We, we don't know for sure. Neither Richard nor Anthony show up again in the records until later that fall, so we don't know. But there's also some debate as to whether Jaquetta was actually with Richard and Anthony when they were taken to Calais. Now, I've read historians that are on both opinions. They're on both sides of that. Unfortunately, I haven't had the opportunity to examine the records myself yet. But whether she was there in person or not, given Warwick's longstanding animosity towards her husband, Jaquetta had to have been worried about whether her family would ever be released safely. So even after the Woodvilles survived the Cousins' War, made peace with Edward IV, and transferred their support to the new king, it was actually their worst dangers were still to come. And we've already talked about how Warwick eventually turned his coat and organized a new invasion of England with Edward's brother George. Well, of course, Edward knew from personal experience just how effective his old mentor Warwick could be with an army. So he moved to intercept Warwick and stop the invasion. When he did so, Edward was accompanied by Richard, who was there not just as his father-in-law, but also in his role as a very experienced military commander, as well as by John, who was one of the younger Woodville sons. While the situation went terribly and tragically wrong for Edward, as Warwick's men defeated his, and aware of Warwick's hatred for the Woodvilles, Edward basically commanded Richard and John to go, just to get as far away as they could for their own safety. Unfortunately, in the days that followed the battle, both Richard and John were captured by Warwick's forces, as was Edward himself. So now, Warwick has the king in his power, and he was a essentially in control of the government. So he took the opportunity to eliminate his political rivals. So he knew how influential Richard and John were at court. And he knew that the blow would be so severe to both Edward and his queen. So Warwick had them both beheaded without trial on August 12th, 1469. So Jaquetta was once more now a widow and a grieving mother while her daughter, the queen, was likely in danger as well, considering that the family's enemy had her husband held captive. Jaquetta certainly did not have an easy time of it in life. No, that's an awful, awful situation. And I, I suppose we can't talk about Jaquetta without me asking you about the accusation of witchcraft, which I believe comes in 1469. So can you tell us who accused her? And I, Although I think I have a um, little suspicion and why as well. Well, I think you're guessing the right way there, Natalie. <laughs> After everything we talked about in terms of the rivalry between the Kingmaker and the Woodvilles, it's probably not going to come as a surprise to anybody to hear that it was the Earl of Warwick who sponsored the charges of witchcraft against Jaquetta. But it also probably won't be terribly surprising to hear that Warwick was using this charge as a tactic to undermine both Jaquetta's family and the king, rather than because he genuinely thought she was a practicing witch. So to the who, what, when, where, why of the situation. You were right. In the fall of 1469, Warwick was 
riding really high after capturing the king and essentially taking over Edward's government. And after executing Richard and John Woodville, he was still coming in hot after his enemies. So he must have seen this as the absolute perfect opportunity to get rid of the whole family and just plunk the Nevilles back into power one way or another. So he doesn't stop after just doing away with Richard and his son, which to be honest, was probably a well-calculated move on Warwick's part. Because Warwick knew that Jaquetta was still a formidable opponent, especially with the support of the common people. So he went for the tried-and-true method that had already been used twice before in just the 15th century alone. He charged her with witchcraft and took her into custody. We should take a quick step back here to clarify, though. When we talk about witchcraft accusations against highborn women in the 15th century, we're talking about something very different than some of the later witchcraft trials that we might all be more familiar with. So this was not like the trials in Scotland in the late 16th century or the ones at Pendle or Salem in the 17th century. The purpose here wasn't to punish an individual for sins witnessed by their neighbors or even to purify the community. In Jaquetta's case, Warwick's intention was to achieve his political ambitions by removing the powerful female figures in his way, and then to use their downfall to damage the men that they were associated with. So in this case, Edward IV himself. That might sound like a bit of a strange way to go about it, but as Gemma Holman writes in her fantastic book, Royal Witches, which I recommend everyone read, it's fantastic, this strategy had already been done to great effect a few decades earlier. So back in 1419, Jaquetta was just a little girl at this time, but Henry IV's widow, Joan of Navarre, was accused of witchcraft, and this was done so that her stepson, Henry V, could take control of her lands and income, which included what her husband had dictated in his will, and use it to fight the French wars instead. Now, he didn't do this out of spite. I mean, the two always got along together very well, and even before he died, Henry instructed that all of Joan's property should be returned to her, and she should be allowed to go on her merry way. So as bizarre as it sounds to us, it really was just a political machination that allowed the government to save the money it was supposed to be paying her, according to her dead husband's will, and spend it on what they would rather, which was the war in France. It wasn't personal, but it was a charge that there was really no way that Joan or any woman who would be targeted could really effectively refute. So for example, if someone says that you look at their cow funny and the cow dies, how can you prove that it wasn't your look that killed it? So it's a really tough point or a tough situation for any woman to be in at that point. But just in case we think that Joan's case might have been an isolated one, an even more extreme occurrence came about in 1441. Now, at this time, Henry VI was still a teenager, and so he was still guided and advised by his father's family. Now, Jaquetta's first husband, Bedford, had died about six years before which left Henry's other uncle, Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, and Cardinal Henry Beaufort as his primary advisors. Now, these two had been constantly struggling against each other for years to influence the young king, who, frankly, was very easily persuaded. Now, Duke Humphrey was very popular with the English people, but they never did like his wife, Eleanor Cobham. Now, this was due in part because she was relatively low-born, but also because there had been some scandal surrounding her marriage to Humphrey. Well, Cardinal Beaufort knew that it could be dangerous for him to try to undermine his rival, the Duke directly, but he saw an opportunity to damage Humphrey's credibility. So he decided to attack Eleanor, who was in many ways the more vulnerable target. He charged Eleanor and some of her companions with trying to use sorcery to kill the king, and he even said that Eleanor had used witchcraft to trap the Duke into marrying her. So again, of course, there's no way that any of them could prove that they didn't do these things, so they were all convicted of treason. Eleanor was the only one who escaped execution, but she lost everything else. Her marriage was annulled, her titles and possessions retained 
taken away and she was sentenced to what was basically house arrest for the rest of her life. So with a prior example like that, it's easy to see why Warwick thought he'd found the perfect way to get rid of the last of his Woodville enemies. So he cooked up this flimsy case against Jaquetta that was actually very reminiscent of Eleanor Cobham's trial. So I don't think he actually even got all that creative with some of it. But there was a London merchant who produced a little doll-like figure and claimed that he had seen Jaquetta use it in a spell to try to make King Edward fall in love with her daughter, Elizabeth. And his point there by saying that was that, well, there's no other reason that makes sense why Edward would have just married a nobody, right? It had to have been witchcraft. And from Warwick's perspective, it should have worked. Eleanor Cobham had been a royal duchess. She was married to a brother of Henry V, just like Jaquetta had been. And even that wasn't enough to protect her from the witchcraft accusation. So why would Warwick think the case would go any differently for Jaquetta? And if he could bring down Jaquetta, he could use it to his advantage in a couple of different ways. On the one hand, he could probably get Edward's marriage to Elizabeth annulled on the basis that had been made through witchcraft, just like Eleanor and Humphrey's marriage had been annulled. And with Elizabeth and her children gone, then Warwick and his family would be back in the number one spot. On the other hand, even if Edward didn't welcome Warwick back with open arms, Warwick could use Edward's disgraced ex-wife and family to undermine Edward's reputation and credibility with the rest of the country, which again would probably make it pretty darn easy to overthrow Edward. And then Warwick the Kingmaker could just put somebody else on the throne instead. So either way, it looked like it was a pretty solid deal for Warwick. Now, I can't imagine what it would have been like to be Jaquetta, but she must have been absolutely terrified at this point. Now, she'd been in England in 1441, so she knew what happened to her former sister-in-law. And even worse in this situation, with Warwick in charge of the government, it was very unlikely that anybody would be able to, or possibly even try, to convince him not to have Jaquetta burned at the stake. So she was probably facing a very gruesome death. Yet she didn't cave in or break down. Instead, Jaquetta wrote a letter to the mayor and leading men of London, reminding them not only of her reputation and what they knew of her as a person, but also of the service that she did for them back in 1461 when she intervened with Margaret to keep her ar army out of London. So really, frankly, Jaquetta called in a solid. And as a result of it, the case was taken out of Warwick's hands and put before the king's court to examine the witnesses instead. On the one hand, that might sound like not much of an improvement because there still was a was a, a trial going forward, but it meant that Warwick no longer had the opportunity to pass summary judgment in a sham trial or rush to execution like he did with Jaquetta's husband and son. So as it turns out, once Warwick's witnesses were faced with the king's justice, they withdrew their claims against Jaquetta and backpedaled pretty darn quick. In January of 1470, so just a few months later, Jaquetta was cleared of all the charges of witchcraft by the king's council. However, at this point, she knew her enemy Warwick very well, and she was not willing to just let it drop there. So she demanded that the council fully document its acquittal of her in the official records so that none of Edward's enemies could ever try to revive those charges again in the future. And every single member of the, of the council, including Warwick, agreed to her demand. Sadly, the old rumors of witchcraft were dragged up again after both Jaquetta and Edward had passed away. We know that Richard III used them very vaguely in his titulus regius to say that Elizabeth and Edward were never really married, thereby making the princes in the tower illegitimate and, of course, making him the most legitimate next candidate. Now, as a result, that's the picture that's traveled down through history most commonly, even though there's never any proven evidence against Jaquetta. And despite there was an obvious political advantage to Richard if he could discredit her daughter and grandsons. So though, I think the most remarkable aspect of 
Jaquetta's trial is that she was the first noble woman who, once accused, was able to face down the accusation of witchcraft just using her own good name and the high regard in which other people held her. I think that's pretty incredible. It really does demonstrate what a formidable opponent she was and obviously why Warwick was doing anything in his power to to get rid of her. So I'm going to introduce another Elizabeth into the story. Hopefully I don't confuse myself here. So what influence do you think Jaquetta had on her granddaughter, Elizabeth of York? Well, we know that Elizabeth was just over six years old when her grandmother died, but it seems probable that Jaquetta spent considerable time with her daughter, the queen's family, and therefore would have spent quite a bit of time in person with the young princess. So in a very direct way then, it's likely that Jaquetta encouraged her granddaughter to value books and learning. And we know that Jaquetta greatly valued the books that she inherited from her first husband, and Elizabeth then ensured her own children were very well educated. So that emphasis on on education seems to really have been a family trait. Now, even after Jaquetta's death, I think her example still would have been influential for Elizabeth of York. And in particular, I think there are two specific and really quite difficult scenarios that both grandmother and granddaughter had to face. And I think that Elizabeth of York may have looked to Jaquetta's experiences to kind of help her through them a little bit. So first, I think that Elizabeth would have learned from Jaquetta's life that sometimes it is just absolutely necessary to change sides politically. And whether that's for the greater good of your family or the benefit and stability of the country, Jaquetta demonstrated that sometimes one has no other choice but to change their loyalties, no matter how deeply held they might be. So I can imagine Elizabeth having grown up a princess of the House of York, now getting ready to marry Henry Tudor shortly after Tudor defeated and killed her own uncle in battle, and thinking of how her grandmother had to recognize and essentially accept the Lancastrian defeat and make peace with the Yorks, both to keep her family safe and to just end that terrible civil war that had been going on for far too long. Second, I think Jaquetta's legacy would have taught Elizabeth the importance of protecting her immediate family against the risks that were so inherent to a royal family. After their marriage, Elizabeth's husband, Henry VII, found himself facing two pretenders to the crown one who claimed to be Elizabeth's cousin, and the other who claimed to be her brother. Now, of course, this threatened not only Henry's place on the throne, but it also posed a dangerous risk to their sons, Arthur and Henry. And Elizabeth knew this all too well. Her own brothers were the princes in the tower that disappeared after Richard III took the throne. So she knew in a very personal way that if Henry was deposed, anything might happen to her own sons. So from both her mother and grandmother, I think Elizabeth of York knew that she might have to make some difficult decisions in order to protect her own children, even if those decisions could put other members of her family in danger. Of course, we don't know exactly what Henry and and Elizabeth might have discussed in terms of the threats to their dynasty, but we do know that in the end, two young men were executed supposedly at the request of the king and queen of Spain, but in order for their sons, their son Arthur's road to the throne to be secure, it had to happen. And one of them, at least, was very directly related to the queen. Whether or not Elizabeth was directly involved in that decision, it must have been a very difficult situation for her personally. But perhaps her mother and grandmother's wisdom might have helped give her a little bit more internal strength. Let's travel to 1472 for a moment. So tell us about Jaquetta's death. And you've talked a little bit about the legacy, but whether there's anything else you want to say around that. So you're right. Jaquetta passed away on May 30th, 1472. And she was the age of 56, which wasn't a bad age for a woman of that time. Unfortunately, we have very little left of Jaquetta in terms of a material legacy. There are no confirmed portraits or likenesses of her. And there's just one surviving example of her signature. Though if we think about it, the location of this signature is incredibly fitting. It's a tiny inscription made inside a 
volume that includes a copy of The Book of the City of Ladies by Christine de Pizan. Now, this volume was just one of the items from the Duke of Bedford's great library, which he left entirely to Jaquetta in his will. So as I mentioned, Jaquetta valued that library, left it to her own children, especially to Elizabeth and Anthony, who clearly also inherited her love of books as they became patrons of the printing press. So in fact, Anthony was one of the primary patrons, or if not the patron, of William Caxton, who brought the first printing press to England. So in this way, Jaquetta's legacy includes both this treasury of old and, and rare collected books, as well as the future of new printed volumes in England. And as I touched on earlier, of course, future generations of Jaquetta's descendants, including Henry VIII and Elizabeth I, continued as scholars and patrons of books and writers. Also, I'm interested in knowing how you feel about the way that Jaquetta has been portrayed in fiction. I'm sure lots of people listening have, you know, read Philippa Gregory's novels and watched some of the, the shows that came out of those books. Do you feel that those portrayals do her justice at all? Well, I really appreciate the way that you phrase that question, Natalie. Uh, you know, I think it's important for us not necessarily always to consider in a work of fiction, you know, whether the portrayals are an accurate account of what really happened in her life, but whether they do her justice. And as with most women of her day, we just have so few specific details of her everyday life. But I do think it's possible for a fictional account to give a sense of the woman and her experience overall, even when a lot of the detail has to be created and, and filled in. So as you mentioned, Flippa Gregory's novels, those are a great place to start. And as I just said, I won't go into how accurately each person or event is depicted or, or which elements of the story are pure fiction. And I think it's you know, I think it's key that each individual reader kind of has their own preference for how authors balance the things that we know for sure against the things that have to come from the author's interpretation. But I think that they still can serve a, an important role in helping to understand the person and the time they lived in. So for example, did Jaquetta ever really meet Joan of Arc or was she present at Joan's execution in Rouen? We don't know for sure. Is it possible? Yes. In both cases, it's possible. You know, and of course, historians can say we don't know. But a fiction writer can't say, well, maybe she was there, maybe she wasn't. That doesn't make for a very good story. But I think the important thing is that whether Jaquetta personally witnessed these, uh, these events or not, the fact remains that her family was heavily involved in them. We know that for sure. And so it would have really shaped Jaquetta's life experience either way, whether it was through witnessing them herself or if she was hearing the secondhand accounts. Now, of course, there are certainly other aspects of Jaquetta's story that are told, especially in those novels, that have a different purpose. You know, they're, they're there to to present a, a fascinating, almost fairy tale-like story. So for example, the connection between Jaquetta's House of Luxembourg and the mythology of the water goddess Melusine, that's pretty prominent throughout the storyline. And it's that connection that supposedly gives Jaquetta and her daughter Elizabeth some of the magical abilities, like seeing the future and, and controlling the elements. So no, I don't think that these storytelling elements add to our factual understanding of Jaquetta's life, but I do think that they can help create a sense of the overall world that Jaquetta inhabited. One of those changes was that public opinion about the possible presence of magic and witchcraft changed drastically. At the start of the 15th century, alchemy was largely regarded as a form of science, and we know that very well-respected and reputable men, including Jaquetta's first husband, the Duke of Bedford, supported the study of alchemy in the hopes that it could be used to create more resources to support the ongoing war in France. And on a much smaller scale, at that time, things like charms or remedies that were given out by a village wise woman were not considered 
inherently dangerous or wicked. Yet by the turn of the 16th century, texts like the Malleus Maleficarum started to provoke fear of malevolent forces, and that would eventually result in witch hunts in both England and across continental Europe. So we see that some level of awareness of these otherworldly abilities or skills, or at least the possibility that they could exist, would have been part of the cultural fabric of the time. And for the modern reader, who doesn't have that in our normal everyday life, that helps to set the stage for the witchcraft accusations faced by the real Jaquetta. So overall then, I do find Gregory's portrayal of Jaquetta to do justice to what we know of the actual woman and her spirit. I think she's presented as level-headed and capable, very much aware of the advantages and drawbacks of her position in life. We know that she understands that that life is close to the royal household is a balancing act. Certainly there are benefits and favors to be won. And like anyone else who is born in a noble household, she knows that without the king's favor, it's very hard for anyone to rise in the world. Yet on the other hand, Jaquetta in the novels is wise enough to see the flip side of the coin. So she sees that any wealth or status received from the ruler can also disappear just as quickly if one falls out of favor, or even more certainly if the ruler suddenly finds himself without a crown. So the Jaquetta in the novel is practical and has learned enough from what she's seen in the world to recognize that. In addition, she's someone who feels a deep sense of loyalty to the house that has worn the crown and been served by generations of her family. She holds great loyalty to Henry VI, who was the nephew of her first husband, Bedford, and out of love and duty for both Bedford and Henry, she sees it as her duty to support and guide the new queen, Margaret of Anjou. For those who may have only seen the TV adaptation, they may have heard that of course, the, you know, the show did take some substantial liberties with the plot and the characterization in general, not as much as they did with the white princess, in my opinion, anyway, but still. <laughs> but I think if you've only seen the show, I think you still would have gotten a decent idea of Jaquetta's character. She's presented as the capable matriarch who's, again, quick thinking, has an eye or an ear out for danger at all times. But you get a sense that she's an experienced player in these political games. She's been around the court long enough that she knows the warning signs and she's aware of how dangerous it can be. And we see that when Jaquetta and her family return to court with Elizabeth, who's now queen, Jaquetta fits right back into the court scene as if she's never left it. And this really isn't surprising. As I've mentioned already, she's been her whole life in courts you know, since she was a child. But it's really her ability to swim with the sharks, if you will, that gives the Woodvilles a measure of the credibility that they really need among the Yorks. We never get the sense that it, that Jaquetta feels any kind of triumph at her return to court or that she feels she's getting what's due to her. Instead, she seems to simply just blend back in and naturally belong there as much or more so than anyone else who had ever been. And as such, she shows Elizabeth how a queen must handle herself to survive and thrive at court. Now, for example, Jaquetta isn't easily provoked, but we see that she knows how to deflect those little snarky barbs and the, the belittling comments that she gets from people like Warwick and Duchess Cecily. So I really do think that in a lot of ways there, Jaquetta's essential spirit, I guess, is well reflected through those works of fiction. Now, the final thing I want to ask you just to bring this, the, the interview part to an end is, you know, you've obviously immersed yourself in this time period. It's, it's very clear that you've spent a lot of time delving into the sources and delving into Jaquetta's life, how would you summarize the woman you've come to know? I think a key part to Jaquetta's character is that from the start, you know, she was such a keen observer of the politics all around her. She clearly learned from the mistakes and the successes of the people that she was around. And you know, I think especially the Duke of Bedford, in those few years that they had together, I think she clearly learned a lot 
from him about the workings of the English court. And I, I wonder if perhaps he was something of a mentor to her. I don't have anything to support that, but that's just kind of the feel that I get that, you know, he would have kind of walked her through some of those new situations. And of course, Jaquetta was a woman who wanted her family to prosper in advance. But I think overall, she was more concerned that they remained safe amidst all these wild political swings that were happening and the changing loyalties that just turned on the outcome of a battle. And so suddenly things could be so, so different. And I think her biggest thing was that she wanted her family to be safe. The woman that I've come to know also is, and I think you used this word earlier, Natalie, but she's courageous and she's indomitable. When we're discussing women's history, especially prior to the past century or so, when women's rights movements have made great improvements in women's lives and liberties, historians often have to examine how a woman might have exercised her own agency in ways that were very much different than those of men, but still often very effective. And the Jaquetta that I've come to know in my research is one who understood both the limitations of her gender and position, but also who knew how to exercise influence on those around her using the tools that a woman of her standing had at her disposal. For example, when Warwick took Jaquetta prisoner and accused her of witchcraft, she knew that her reputation and the respect the people of London had for her after a lifetime of acting with fairness and justice were going to be her best weapons to fight back. She knew from what her former sister-in-law and her first stepmother-in-law had faced that really there was no way that she could effectively prove that what Warwick said was false. So she stood firm on her identity and reputation as the Dowager Duchess of Bedford, maybe even more so than as the king's mother-in-law, and given the relationship between Warwick and Edward at the time. And essentially, she demanded that Warwick's nonsense be dismissed as just that. And in my mind, I like to think of her as standing up tall in front of Warwick, pulling herself up to her full height, but entirely calm and composed, and practically challenging whether he dared to say such a thing about her. And I think that her courage to be an influential woman to be reckoned with was another characteristic that she passed down to her daughter and her granddaughter. And perhaps we even see it in her great, great granddaughter, Elizabeth I. Becky, thank you so much. You have given us so much to think about. And I'm so grateful that you've been so generous, not just with your expertise, but with your time as well. So I am I'm super grateful. There's one last thing, I promise. And then I'll let you get on with your evening. One last thing. And that's, I asked my guests for a Tudor takeaway. So something for our listeners to go off and explore after the show. Um, sometimes people suggest movies, music to listen to, books to read. Do you have a Tudor takeaway for us? I do. And in fact, if it's okay, I have two, just yes. kind of keeping in mind that your listeners I know are worldwide. And so uh, one item, one item would be less accessible anyway, um, to folks with travel restrictions re recently. So my first item is that I would recommend that people check out the excellent online resources from the Folger Shakespeare Library. And I'm betting that that probably has been mentioned on your show before, but it is an excellent online resource for all kinds of things from Shakespeare's period. And in fact, one of the things that I have found myself falling down a rabbit hole in is that there are a number of very old manuscripts that have been digitized and placed on the website so that anyone can go out and you know not only try their hand at a little bit of paleology, but also just to start to get an idea of what writing was like at the time, you know, what communication was like, all sorts of things. Um, so if you go to the Folger, Folger Shakespeare Library site, there'll be a link at the top to the Folgerpedia. And so that will lead you quickly to the dim, digital image collection, and it should be easy to find from there. But truly, the whole website is worth 
exploring. Now, for those folks who are in Europe or are able to travel there soon, I would recommend that people visit Penshurst Place. Again, that's the the estate in Kent. It's not very far away at all from Hever Castle. So you can probably do those in the same day or at least in a weekend if you have the opportunity. But the great thing about Penshurst, it features the Baron's Hall, which is a very old medieval building. In fact, it was already almost a century old when Jaquetta visited there uh, with the Duke of Bedford, who owned the property at the time. And there is also a wing of the building or of the property known as the Buckingham Wing. And that was designed and put up by the Duke of Bedford. So there's some really cool aspects, I think, of being able to look at exactly what Jaquetta saw during her lifetime. To me, it gives me a little bit of, of shivers, I guess, down the spine to think yeah. that I can look at the same things that she would have looked at. Again, that's that's on my list to do yet too, but anyone is able to get there, I would highly recommend going. They're fantastic suggestions and I'll add the link to the the Folga um, in the show notes. And yes, Penta's place is beautiful. I have been there, and, but I must say that when I was there, I was thinking of other characters from history and not Jaquetta. So I'll need to add her to the, to the list next time and think a little bit about her life as well. So Becky, as I said, thank you so much. This has been such an interesting discussion. And thank you so much for talking Tudors with us. Well, thank you so much, Natalie. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners. So if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family. And don't forget to subscribe, rate and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. Mm-hmm.